Welcome to the Faith and Grief Podcast, where we explore the intersection of faith and grief. I'm your host, Shelley Craig, Program Director at Faith and Grief. We're a nonprofit that provides grief support programs in person and online through support gatherings, grief workshops, and retreats. Find out more about our programs and this podcast at faithandgrief.org. We hope the stories and interviews you hear provide some comfort and hope on your grief journey. On today's episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking with entrepreneur and chief cookie officer of Wacom's Kitchen, Paul Wacom. Paul started his cookie business a little over 10 years ago at the Coppell Farmer's Market here in Coppell, Texas. Today, we're going to talk about a different kind of grief, grief after a catastrophe, after an event, after trauma. He's going to talk a little bit about his experience with the loss of his home and what the pandemic's been like for him and his business. How are you today? It's another day in paradise. I'm good. I'm fine. That's good. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's quiet here today. We're not baking. Ah. So we um, were were hammered in December in preparation for promotions in January. So we're on sale at HEB, Central Market, and Whole Foods right now. So all of that merchandise gets shipped around the 1st of January. Wow. So we've done things like we have thousands of sheet pans and those are hand washed and that's happened and other chores that have to happen. So, Oh my goodness. I can't, I can't even imagine, especially like the last six, eight weeks during the holidays. Oh yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. The holidays are because we do our normal business plus the sales stuff happening in January. And then you layer on all of the gifting. So, yeah. Tell me what this last year has been like for you personally and professionally. Ultimately business as usual. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been the whole, I look back in the last year and the arc of how we came to understand what was going on um, was very odd. I, uh, Went to visit my father for his birthday. He'll be 92 on uh, February 14th. So I went and saw him last February in South Carolina and came back on the 16th. And I, that next weekend, I was the most sick I've been in memory. Mm. Have not tested, high fever, aches and pains, really tough chest stuff. And you know, bounced right back. So this is mid February, mm-hmm. um, bounced back, took a bit to get rid of the cough. I'm paranoid of uh, pneumonia. My mom had pneumonia a lot. So I did everything in my power to clear my lungs and blah, 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 blah. So then, uh, I had a, uh, large meeting with store managers from multiple States with one of my customers. And I had a slide presentation that I gave and it, by then, this is like second week of March, and people were aware, but right. not really paying attention. No. Everyone, wanted, everyone wanted to shake my hand and hug me, and I'm like, you know, no, yeah, I just, I'm good. And I said, you know, there is this little bug going around, and then chuckle, chuckle, chuckle. And part of my slide presentation is I had a slide with "Remember the Jazz Hand Greeting." Yes. <laughs> And just Jack, a picture of just Jack and a Saturday Night Live skit with rubber gloves and the hands. And it got a half chuckle. And then the next week, the shutdown. Mm. And I thought, oof, this is going to be a hard road. Getting people to understand there's something going on, which, of course, we've now seen. So people still, a year later, wear their masks, 
below their nose mm. or on their chin mm -hmm. and think they're going to be fine. Yeah. So we were careful at the kitchen and I don't recall when we decided to uh, all wear masks all the time. Uh, we didn't shut down at all. We had a little bit of a slowdown and that actually allowed more catch up projects. Um, mm -hmm. Hung art, we've been in this building two and a half years. I still have boxes and boxes. We have hundreds of paintings here, literally. So those got hung, but we continued to march forward. Interestingly, sales have been very strong for the entire year. People have to eat, people want to eat, and they've enjoyed our cookies, yeah. which is awfully, awfully nice. Well, you know I have, um, yes. because uh, I'm a loyal customer. It's a perfect thing. And to me, what was great about um, Wacom Kitchen cookies was um, I could give them to other people. Yes. And because they were already packaged, they weren't concerned about, like, it did come from me, you know, where has it been before? It, so it was an easy, hey, I'm going to drop off some stuff for you. Let me put that in there. So, right. you know, it worked well. It, it blew us away, the generosity of spirit that we saw last year uh, in gifting particulars. We do have our website, wackhamskitchen.com, and we found both Mother's Day and Easter to be Christmas-like mm. with the amount of gifting and an awful lot of notes. And I see every note from every website order uh, just talking about hanging in, mm -hmm. staying in, staying safe with all of this wonderful exchange of love mm. in the form of a cookie. Easy, bite-sized, crunchy, all those things. So... We were double blessed by continue, being able to continue to work and being able to share and support people who wanted something to liven up their lives and brighten each other's days. Yeah. And your cookies do that. Yeah. <laughs> I, they, they are a staple of my tea time every day awesome. um, because of their size and because right. they're so good. Um, I give myself three at tea time and that's my thing. And uh, I decided early on in the pandemic that that was just going to be one of my treats for myself every day. Like, awesome. you know, this is just, yeah. I, I could eat a whole box. But okay. <laughs> yes. I think we all could. Uh, it is sort of interesting. I talk about that a, a lot when people say, oh, I can't eat that. The, re the reality is the majority of our customers are fit. It's about mindful eating. Mm -hmm. It's uh, for you. It's three. Three is your magic number. My mom used to take out two cookies for she and dad every day after lunch, put them on a plate and put the container back in the pantry. Mindful eating. Yes. Of course, there was the wedding that I brought uh, hundreds of little eight cookie bags mm -hmm. for the party favors for my cousin's wedding in South Carolina. And I went to reach for my third cookie that evening and my mother scolded me and told me that I had enough. Thanks, mom. <laughs> That's awesome. It's yeah. my it's my company, Mom. You and I got started one uh, Saturday at the Coppell Farmers Market here in Coppell, Texas, talking about um, your story and how you created Wacom's Kitchen. And you asked me, "What do you do?" And I said, "Well, I work for a grief support uh, nonprofit." And believe me, when I tell people that, it always changes their face a bit because they're always sort of like, "Oh, okay," and then. Sometimes they get serious and sometimes they usually tell me their story. 
and we started talking about um, your experience um, with your own experience with grief. And I was like, you know, I really need, you need to tell that story so people can hear what you went through, but also kind of what it's like on the other side um, and how that's sort of changed or um, enhanced your life through that process. So tell me a little bit about um, your house. All right. And uh, kind of that, and and maybe we'll talk about uh, how Wacom Kitchen got started. Wacom's. Wacom's. Wacom Kitchen. Last name's Wacom. Yes. And that is actually my last name. Um, it's Lebanese. My father's uh, great, great uncles came into Florida in 1902 and landed in the Carolinas where there's a huge Lebanese and Syrian population. Yeah. So, and it's an Ellis Island name. So if you ever meet another Wacom, I'm related to them. Oh, okay. It was yeah. the, okay, I'm not sure how to spell that, but I'm going to write it down anyway. Like, uh, I've done oh, some, oh, yes. Yeah. Like phonetically phonetically exactly um i did i've done a lot of ancestry uh, research on my own family and it's interesting how our name changed over the generations and there's like the census happens and suddenly the name was misspelled but no one changed it so that's the way it's spelled now interestingly that it was adopted yeah The, the new spelling yeah and I suppose if your driver's license, when you apply for something and it was a typo, yeah. then you just sort of move forward with that document. Yeah. So as your, as your proof of existence. Yeah, so exactly. Um, I bought my house in '91 over in East Dallas. It's a large stone house on a good sized piece of land, and I can walk to White Rock Lake. We're kind of around the corner Got from it. the Arboretum, really pretty neighborhood. And when I moved into it, I was working uh, at Howard Wolf. Um, I was there head designer for 14 years. When I bought it, people were asked, why do you want to live way over there? Well, (laughs) then it felt like way over there. Now, a lot of folks have moved over there because of the size of the houses, size of the lots, and you can get a lot of nice property for your your money. So uh, Howard Wolf factors into my story in that after 47 years, the Wolfs decided to retire and sell the business. They sold the business to a company in Los Angeles, Saint Germain, mm-hmm. the denim manufacturer, and famous for their zip front uh, jumpsuits in the 70s. Oh, yes. And uh, so I went to, I was part of the package and went to work for them. I worked in Dallas for six months and then uh, in the process of moving to Los Angeles and stayed out there for six months. At the six-month mark, the new owner said, well, you're, you're moving to Los Angeles now. So I started the process of um, preparing my house, my home, uh, to be sold. Didn't have a dishwasher. I'd been in, in it nine years prior to the fire and um, hired a handyman to put a dishwasher in. I had a big estate sale, uh, reduced my bulk in half, because as you saw the interior of my office, um, I have a lot of stuff. I've always had a lot of stuff. (laughs) Um, Yeah, my takeaway from the estate sale was $30,000, my cut. Um, Multiple sofas, sets of dining room chairs, the garage was full, it was great fun. And um, so I had the cash in my pocket, uh, hired the handyman who, in uh, sweating copper to put the uh, plumbing in for the dishwasher, set a two by four in the wall of fire and went home. 
I was in Los Angeles, um, had just gone to bed, and my neighbor who had been cat sitting um, had left a message, said, call anytime, day or night, there's a problem at your house. Uh, come to find out that it burned internally from, it was October 5th of 99, um, burned internally and burned up the wall, up through the story and half house. It had to take out the interior, burn under and burn up, and then took the house from the inside out and had to burn through the ceiling to get to the smoke detest detector inside the sheetrock right so it burned for a very long time apparently the scene was devastating the neighbors when the uh, alarm finally did go out everyone came outside heavy tree uh tree cover mm -hmm. the neighborhood is filled with smoke no one could tell whose house was on fire mm. and the firemen too when they arrived couldn't tell and eventually they pinpointed my house broke the door down and the day before at uh i went back to los Angeles, i'd taken all the furniture and art out of the house, move the art upstairs and the furniture on the sun porch, covered all that with blankets on the sun porch because it was gonna have the hardwood redone. Firemen walk into this empty house full of smoke, no furniture, strangely enough. Could tell there's a fire, went upstairs, that's where the art was, had 48 paintings involved with the fire, lost 18 entirely, mm -hmm. took a year to restore those. Uh, and then they proceeded to start throwing things out the window. By that point, I'd called my friends. They'd gathered outside. They said, no, that's real stuff. Don't do that. Um, the next morning, I, I flew back. I was greeted by actually my framer and friend who helped me pick through the art and figure out a plan for that. And then another friend who had worked the estate sale, who's become a very close friend, signed up to help me inventory everything in the house. Wow. So for days, we went through, and it's an important thing, if you suffer a catastrophic fire, you have to prove that you owned it. Yeah. Or prove, they want receipts, but proof of ownership was enough. So I had a witness, and we literally went through, and the insurance adjuster like, no, 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 just say you've got a bunch of silverware. No, you have to count the forks, because then they assign a value to that. Right. And if it, once they throw all that away, uh, you don't have records. So Sharon worked with me uh, diligently for days. Another neighbor came and did the same thing. I cleared out everything salvageable, sent away stuff that was uh, was to be restored, and then started the process, the process of the mess of insurance adjusters, contractors, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, um, two months go by, I got a settlement uh, for the insurance company, of course, it was a short pay. They expect you to do all the work before they give you all the money. Right. I was grossly underinsured and want to cap out the amount I was insured for. And um, so I carried a $116,000 check in my briefcase for six months uh -huh. until I could actually get the insurance company to agree to pay me the full amount rather than short paying me. So they, they did wacky things like when the fireman came in the house, they broke in my front door. So that had to be repaired. Sure. And they they take the amount of insurance coverage you have for replacement and divide that between all the tasks necessary. So they assigned repainting my front door uh, for $14 with how much they estimated it was going to cost. And I, oh, uh, 
grace. I have to back up and state clearly that in that chunk of time, the year or so I was out of my house, I experienced the highest level of grace that I was ever able to acknowledge in my life. Mm. That all of my needs were met, not my wants. The wants I had to figure out and pay for. But I had uh, the insurance company rented me an apartment and which was sort of ridiculous because I was working in LA. So I kept that for six months. And at the end of that time, when I came back, I said, that's silly to spend that money with no income. And I negotiated that they would just give me that flat amount that I lived on mm-hmm. for the rent. And I stayed with friends and they hosted me. They were empty nesters uh, close enough. So it was convenient. And I had a number of households of really close friends that I would spend most of my evenings with. Mm-hmm. So I'd hop from household to household. We had the ER night, we'd have dinner, we'd have this show and that show. And um, so truly my needs were met. And I would, often people would observe that, how incredible it was to watch me gracefully walk through that chunk of time mm-hmm. and continue to move forward rather than collapsing. So beautiful house gets done. I'm done. I kind of collapse. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes to... that happens. Like when we're, especially cause we, we talked about what you went through was a form of grief. Um, there's so many different kinds of grief, but sometimes in our grief, we make ourselves busy and you had a project, a, a huge project that was really, like you've said, the love of your life. I mean, this is, this is your, some of your life's work um, and, and time. So, In that collapse at the end, I also realized how much I hated the house. As beautiful as it was, I was resentful. This thing had turned my life upside down. I did everything I could to save it. It still was a hot mess. It became beautiful again, but doggone it, I hated it, truly. And that took a good year of not of of stopping the resentment against this thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I ran to a a girlfriend at the grocery store who uh, was talking to me about that year-long process. And she said, you know, I had always thought about you and your house as being a couple, your partner. And your partner got sick and you had to do everything you could to help them heal but what about you? Mm. And I started dating somebody who said, this is fantastic. I don't really see why you think this. And maybe you need to, <laughs> that you need to yeah, yeah. finger shake, finger shake, finger shake. And, and we all so listened to that, you know. <laughs> it worked so well. But they were right. Mm. I needed to get over it and start reveling in this deliverance into something different and stop holding on to that hurt because it's the only way I was going to heal and move on. And at the end of that uh, chunk of time, I actually went to work for my contractor for a few months, Mm -hmm. uh, working with his new clients, showing off the house and 
talking about their needs and expectations. And I'm, I'm really good about where does the light switch go and yes. how do you want this to function and how can we lay out a roadmap for that to happen. At Labor Day, I went, a, went away went on a vacation like everybody does, right? <laughs> I've been unemployed since uh, February and friends rented a house in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. We went up there and spent the weekend in the house. And part of this grace I talked, talked about was in that trip, I realized I have to get a real job and I have to get a real job now. So Monday morning, I opened my address book and I called seven people in my address book I knew could give me a job. And I called seven people and I asked them all for jobs. And all seven, seven of them said, uh, I really don't have anything, but I'll keep it in mind. Click. That afternoon, Kim Stanley, a very old friend, she's the head fashion stylist with Neiman Marcus, called mm-hmm. said, Paul, and I was one of the people I called. Actually, she was in the house that weekend. Um, she said, there is this strange job. It's the product development manager for Neiman Marcus Epicure Workroom, which was a labor side corporately for Neiman's in Longview. And they had a design and development uh, office. Mm-hmm. And I eventually was hired for that job. And my first day on the job was to step onto an airplane and go to Hong Kong for my first time and for my first buying trip to Hong Kong to develop product for the next Christmas. And that was January of 2000. And the fire had happened. No, I'm sorry. That was October 2000. The fire had happened October of 99. So a full year later. And I worked for them for six years. My responsibilities included uh, food and candy. And I was sent to factories to work with companies to develop. And next thing you know, uh, I had a, found a niche in packaged cookies. And that's eventually what led me to Wackham's Kitchen. Well, I know I probably purchased a lot of the things that you um, created during your time at Neiman's because huh. I was a stay-at-home mom at the time. And before that, I had had a corporate career and I would always go to Neiman's to buy all my little happies, you know, as I called them in our family. Um, but then I went there and I was always like, I would get the catalog and I would look and I would find the, I'd always go to the food because the food was usually a little less expensive and I could find something that would fit. And right. I, there was always something cool. And I'm like, okay, that's what we're going to send everybody this year. There you go. <laughs> and they would get excited because uh, my husband grew up in a um, uh, land development uh, family in Houston. And Neiman's was one of, uh, you know, a staple in their history. And so, you know, his aunts and things like that would love to just get this little thing from Neiman's, you know, each year. But that was always what I loved because it was always really interesting things that you right. would find or create. that. Right. It was great. It was great fun because I could truly play and explore and I didn't have the buying responsibility. So the whole money piece as much as a merchant finding things that would sell well. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I had great success in packaged cookies. I'd taken, they had had the classic Nina Marcus uh, chocolate chip cookie for years and years. And the executive chef for Neiman's published his first cookbook cookbook while I was there, Kevin uh, Garvin, and um, they had the internet myth story about the Neiman Marcus cookie, 
and is absolutely a myth. And he talks about that in the book and he published the recipe um, and it's on their website. It's all over the place. I thought, why in the world are we not selling that cookie? So I took it to our cookie maker, said, let's rework this and do this, this, and this. And it went from an 18,000 unit a year item to 30,000 in the first three months. And the maker of that cookie is actually my friend and mentor to this day. And for the first few years after I left, Neiman's like, Paul, when are you going to go back to work for Neiman's? <laughs> I like that. Neiman's, so that was 2000, 2006. They're still running a half a dozen items that I developed for them. Yeah. So the chocolate chip cookie is one. The um, toffee shortbread is another. The snowball, all those things. Yeah, were. snowball's a favorite of mine. So yeah. 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 So well, good on you, Paul. There you go. Oh, oh. So then a couple other corporate gigs, because I had to finish my arc of my story, yeah. a couple of corporate gigs later, um, I was hired by a venture capitalist group who owned Home Interiors and Gifts. And 10 weeks after they hired me, they filed Chapter 11, laid me off, made me sign a non-disclosure agreement. I was a creative hired as a creative director to fix their product line. Right. Um, and they had me sign a non-disclosure agreement so that it handed me my $37 um, check, severance check, because of my short tenure there. Thanks, guys. <laughs> um, and I consulted for a while, had a great summer, but that was in 2008. Mm -hmm. And by the time summer elapsed, elapsed, we all know what happened to the economy in 2008. Uh, uh, my partner said, Take your cookie idea, go to the farmer's market, start selling cookies. And uh, another form of grief that I, th I thought about this week specifically mm -hmm. was when I was VP of Howard Wolf, and this was a clothing designer. That was everything. I was Neiman's. I was head of product development for Neiman Marcus. Ta -da -da -dum -da -dum. All these great titles. And it actually took a number of years, years, mm -hmm before I settled into my new cookie guy hat, <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, For those of you that don't know, uh, Paul has an awesome, awesome collection of awesome hats that he wears when he sells these cookies. To me, this is the amazing part. The success of Wacom's Kitchen is huge, kind of like everywhere. I, when I mentioned that we were going to talk today, I had four or five people say, are you going to have cookies? And I was like, no, we're on a Zoom call. But these hats are amazing. They're very um, elaborate. And so, uh, and it's always fun to see what Paul's going to wear. But what's amazing to me is that you still stick to your roots. Like you're still selling at the farmer's market. Right. And I, I don't have to. I like it. Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> I actually, it's, and it comes down to the relationships. You know, I enjoy visiting with you every week you come out. And even those that don't ever stop at the table, if they don't show up because they don't walk by, you can set your watch by most people. It's kind of yeah. funny. Well, it's 11 o'clock. Where's so-and-so? It's 10 o'clock. Where have they been? Yeah. Um, but I do, I do love it. Yeah. But so talking about the grief after you've had these. Yeah. So it took, a, it took a while before, and I hate to use the word shame. I had this weird shame thing about, I just make cookies. Well, by just making cookies, my partner and I, we now have a 10,000 square foot building that we own. We have 11 full-time employees and about under normal circumstances for the economy and 
uh, sampling, what have you, we have about 11 part-time people. We make 50,000 cookies a day the same way we have from the beginning. We have two double rack convection ovens that hold um, 3,400 cookies at a time wow. between the two ovens. Um, same ingredients, same methodology. We have two employees that have been with us nine plus years now. Their kids are up and out in college, and one of them's son, while he's in college, has been working for us full-time for a year and a half now. Wow. Yeah. So being a cookie guy, I've grown into that skin and let go of this preconceived notion of what should be mm. and accepted what is. And that's enough. It is. It is. Well, you're an awesome cookie guy, by the way. <laughs> and we're so glad we're so glad that you did uh, as uh, customers and uh, fans of the cookies uh, we're glad you did but so many people go through that especially um, as you have job changes whether it's your choice or not um, and you sort of get attached many times to the title or the you know maybe glamour around a particular type of job and then you change and you know, you've created an entire business. Like it's beyond just your own work. You've created a whole, really a whole culture because a thing. yeah, a thing that people, and, and we, we as your customers, we expect it, you know, we, we just love like, what's the, the, the cover, what's Wacom on the front of the packaging going to look like today? You know, like it, is there a new outfit that he's going to have on or is it, you know, is he adding a new flair to the hat or, you know, his apron? Um, so it's fun. And my kids have grown up with your cookies. Um, they're in college now, but when we first started buying your cookies, they were in elementary school. Oh yeah. And so they, to them, that's just like part of their growing up. Like it was funny uh, when their uh, roommate we introduced your cookies to them and they were like, these are so good. And they're like, you don't know about Wacom's kitchen. <laughs> like they were really kind of put out <laughs> that they didn't know about them, but they're not from this area. And, and sure. you know, but then they said, see, it's right here on central market shelf. And they go, oh, it's been here all along. So was 10 years in October. They were our first big customer. And that's one of the reasons we make 40 different varieties to this day, because every time we turn around, they've got another festival, another something, and we jump right in. We make four hatch chili products for them every year and keep yeah. adding more and more. Well, from your time um, with the catastrophe with your house and now and through these job changes and then the creation of Wacom's Kitchen, what what have you learned about your own resilience? What have you learned about other, you talked a lot about, about the grace you were offered from other people who just, you know, shared their homes and shared their, their expertise and, uh, you know, supporting you. But how, is, how has that been a part of the story? Well, as I mentioned my parents before, uh, my dad um, worked in uh, aerospace-related companies. He wasn't military, but mm -hmm. uh, we were uh, Cape Canaveral and then we're at Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. In 72, he took a job at Disneyland. And he was responsible for uh, the electrical department's landscaping, decorating, and sound, which are three huge components at the park. Oh, yeah. 
And under his guise, they developed the Main Street Electrical Parade and et cetera, et cetera. So for the bicentennial in, in 1976, they, uh, for the city of uh, New York and Macy's, uh, they contracted Disney to build a hundred foot by 50 foot American flag to be flown uh, out of Christmas lights to be flown under a helicopter around the Statue of Liberty on July 4th. So my dad couldn't find, his crews couldn't do it, couldn't find anybody um, as an outside contractor to do it. So dad awarded himself the contract, which meant um, it is exactly 50 feet across our ranch style house in Southern California from my parents' bedroom door, down the hallway, across the entryway, through the family room to a certain point in the game room. 50 feet where we would put two cinder blocks, piece of rebarb and a uh, giant spool of wire to run both ways to measure a hundred plus feet for the strings to create the flag. So we as a family assembled the strings of lights on the heliport of the Disneyland Hotel, um, assembled the American flag. Um, Dad had a framework built, a battery pack that was six foot cube. So imagine a cube of car batteries, six foot cube. Oh, wow. This thing. Um, A footnote is it went missing after the bicentennial. We think it's in the New York Harbor that the helicopter pilot was running low on fuel and had to dump this monstrosity. (laughs) And a sister flag actually flew at Disney World uh, for their celebration. So we made two of them. So from the money we got from this project, dad decided we're gonna build our own pool. So we didn't dig the hole, we didn't do the goodnight, we didn't do the plaster, but we did everything else. And it took almost two years, um, all the plumbing, electric, um, tile, brick, um, trenches, like you wouldn't believe we did. So that's my dad. My mom, um, old Southern stock. um, I thought about this this week because I figured a question like this was going to come up is the resilience. Um, somewhere in that chunk of time, I think a little bit beforehand, uh, she had a lump on her breast and went in for a biopsy. And by the time it was done, she had a ma- modified radical mastectomy. She woke up um, shy one breast. And I'll never forget my dad pulling us aside and telling us what was happening. She didn't actually have to go through radiation or chemo, but she proudly stuffed her bra with Kotex pads and marched out of the hospital and never looked back. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. Yeah. That's just what you do. So the next indicated step was go on with your life. Next indicated step for me all the way along, you make the phone call, you ask if somebody can talk, if they can help. And in turn, you take the phone call. Mm. You agree to tell your story to somebody else. You tell your story to somebody else because from those stories and sharing, mm-hmm. somebody can maybe gain something from it. Exactly. If not, I feel better for telling the story again. And maybe plants a seed in somebody else that they too can heal and walk on 
and stuff their bra with Kotex pads <laughs> and march on. Yes. Thank goodness for Kotex pads. There you go. There you go. But I think what you said about um, sharing your story is so important. Um, and you take that call um, because you, if somebody can hear your story, it can probably help a little bit for them to see themselves in your story. Um, they can relate to it. And they can know that somebody has gotten through this. So I can too. Because in the middle of grief, in the middle of a catastrophe like the fire at your home, sometimes there's days that it just doesn't seem like that's possible. But it is. Hmm. And you and you have to, but you do have to make um, that intention and that decision to do so. Because it doesn't work. It doesn't happen otherwise at all. Well, thank you for sharing that because I think that's, so important. Um, really, that was the reason we started this podcast was to hear people's stories. And just like you said, be able to share and then hopefully folks get some help out of it and find um, relate to the story and find some of their own story there too. All right, so this is an easier question. Okie doke. Uh, so in the midst of this last year, you know, things have, you know, or your business has gone well, but in the course of, you know, your life, where do you find comfort and hope? Ultimately, conversations like this, I've been very, very clear that the market and seeing the customers and building even deeper relationships there has been a huge, huge help for me. Not to isolate I started to say something. I thought it, it rushed through my mind about being in bed. Yeah, no, not so much. Watching TV. Yeah, no, not so much. Eating dinner, not so much. Because those are kind of what well, those are the high points of the year, right? I have not eaten in a restaurant once in a year. Um, which, but truly, it, which is so weird. Okay, so I've eaten in a restaurant twice since the pandemic, and the only reason I had to was because that was our only option. They didn't have a patio. Ah. Uh, and it was on the same day and- Like lunch and dinner? Yes, lunch and dinner. I hadn't eaten in a restaurant in, at that point, like six months. Sitting there, it was, I love to go to restaurants. I love to eat out. Like it is, I love it. I, I love the, just I, the whole thing. It was the weirdest feeling I've, it just, it felt like I didn't know how to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, do I touch that fork? You know, do I? And and it, it was, you know, me being a little bit too cautious. But afterwards, I was like, I can't do it again. No, not no. yet. Nope. I want it. to. We talk about it. Like, no, nope. not, so not worth it. Yep, can't do it again. And I haven't since. Uh, that was back in October. <laughs> yeah. All right. How yep. about you? I am tired of my own cooking. Yeah. Well. Okay. I'm really, you, you've, you know about my kids, and my daughter, Allie, is our chef. And uh, God bless her, about, oh gosh, six, seven years ago, I let her have the kitchen. Oh. Because she, she's an excellent cook. She's a brilliant baker. Um, and she was home this whole time. So I just, I just took my chef, I just took my chef back to college. And yeah, I'm already tired of my cooking. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm a very adventuresome cook. <laughs> All types of, you know, we're having Lebanese again yeah, tonight. Thank you. And, yes. Yeah. 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 Mexican last night. And good at it, but golly, golly. Just I want that comfort factor of knowing I don't have to cook. I know. God, it's awfully nice as a country that we even though we were not prepared in many ways, we were prepared in other ways. Yes. And uh, friends who have a, um, a bar down by the fairgrounds actually just were uh, awarded a James Beard uh, restaurant award. Oh, it's cool. one of my favorite pandemic stories. Um, they had hired an executive chef mm -hmm. as a bar had never served a bite of food. And the day of the city shutdown was the first day of the executive chef starting to work for them. But unlike so many other restaurants who just closed the doors and we're going to sit this out for a few weeks, they immediately pivoted, figured out a menu to go. Mm -hmm. They have an alleyway. It faces the Women's Museum. They have an okay. alleyway okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, between the uh, where the old it? state bar is. And then there in the space is Bar of Soap for a million years. Okay. Um, it's a um, tequila bar. Got it. Um, figured out a, a, a to-go menu, put streamers in the alley and let it become a fiesta to drive through and pick up your food. They're thriving. Oh, I'm sure. Well, the entertainment factor alone. Alone. Yeah. Something to do. Something but to how do. smart in the face of this, they didn't crater. They just put it in a bra yep. and moved and on. just kept going. That's it. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank I you really for sharing know. your story. The Faith and Grief Podcast is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to be a podcast producer, go to faithandgrief.org slash donate and give today.